Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, lead us by your spirit and in your wisdom. We lift this time up to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated for our sermon this morning. My friends, if you haven't already done so, please get a Bible out to Matthew chapter 24. We're looking at Matthew 24, verse 32 to 44 this morning. And as you do so, I want to give you some initial context and some initial themes to consider as we take a look at this passage. So in Matthew 24, starting at verse 1 all the way through to Matthew 25, verse 46, we see the delay, return, and judgment of the Messiah. These two chapters are often called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, as we see from verse 3, when he spoke these words. This is definitely a difficult passage to interpret, and there has been much debate um, over the years about its proper interpretation, so please bear with me as we move through. So just going on with a few more initial themes. Addressed to his disciples, this is intended to give them a prophetic overview of the events to transpire both in the near and distant future, okay? And we know that from history, all of the things that Jesus predicted with respect to the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, false Christs, famines, earthquakes, etc., are well documented that they took place between the time of Jesus' announcement and 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed. So in Matthew 24, starting at verse 32 onward, we hear of the nearness and time of Jesus' coming. And he moves from describing future events to dealing with attitudes that should characterize his followers as they prepare for the end, knowing that his return is imminent. So Jesus warns his followers against deception in Matthew 24. He goes on to say that no one knows the day or the time, right? But we must be ready. And there's this theme of readiness in response. We must note also, before we dive into this, that Jesus' teaching about the future has two time frames, right? The immediate future and also the great future. And as our result, our as a result, our response should also have long and short time frames as well. So how do we understand his coming? Also important to note, in Scripture, when God is speaking, and when we see the language of divine judgment, we see that the language of divine judgment is frequently communicated by way of metaphor and by way of figures or types. So Jesus uses some of this language as he explains the reality of the end. So in this passage, we see the exhortation to prepare for the coming of the Son of Man. If you look quickly at verse 3, Jesus is answering two questions here. One, when will these things be? And number two is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So we're always going to have those two realities in view, right? When will be the destruction of the temple, which takes place within the generation? And then also, not to be led astray, but that summer is near, that we must be ready for Christ's final coming 
and that no one knows the day or the hour. So let us keep these two time frames in mind as we dive into our passage this morning. Let's look at verse 32 to 33. Verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So in verse 32 to 33, these verses point us to look at the signs of the times. We see that Jesus presents these realities as they relate to the fall of Jerusalem, right? And also to the end of the age. Remember the two time frames, right? The destruction of the temple and also the second coming of Christ that Jesus has in view here. So in verse 32 to 33, Jesus offers us a parable. He says that just as shoots and leaves foretell the imminent arrival of summer, so also the sight of all these things means ultimately that Jesus is near at the very gates. In Matthew 24, we can see these broad categories in our Bibles, the destruction of the temple, the signs of the end of the age, the abomination of desolation, and the coming of the Son of Man, right? Specifically from verse 29 to 31, which immediately precedes our passage this morning, we see details about what will take place when the Son of Man comes. Let's look at verse 34 to 35. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, so how do we interpret this here? Well, in verse 34 to 35, we see the mention of this generation, right? This generation most naturally means the people living as Jesus spoke. This generation would see the destruction of the temple that took place in 70 AD. And at the same time, Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple and the abomination of desolation relates to the very end of the age as well, the very end of time. Remember those two realities in view here. We might note that when we look at something like the book of Revelation, we might note that it's both linear and cyclical, right? So there's these sort of signs that will be present in every generation in some sense. And yet there will be a final culmination of all of it. It's pointing towards the final coming at the very end, the second coming of Christ. So we can generally say that these things that we see in verse 34... These things are the beginning of the birth pains, and they're signs that foreshadow the final coming of Christ, including the siege and fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which itself is a type of the full reality that will be experienced at the end. And so before a close of a single generation, believers would feel the reality of the truth of Christ's prophecy. And they would see the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, as a type and a figure of the ultimate reality, right? So again, keeping those two things in mind, it seems that the most natural way to understand these passages is that everything that Jesus said would take place in that generation did take place. 
but that also the destruction of Jerusalem was a God-ordained historical type of what would be at the second coming. It was intimately related to it. So again, these passages are hard to interpret, and there has been much debate about how we interpret them properly. But at the end of the day, generations will see signs, types, figures, destruction, war, etc., temporal signs that point to the reality that summer is near, right? He is near at the very gates. So the point is, we must be ready, right? The end is near. Christ is coming. This is the point here. Let's look at verse 35. In verse 35, we see that Jesus attributes divine authority and permanence to his own teaching, his own words, right? We see that this heaven and this earth will pass away, but that the word of Christ, right? The the word of Jesus Christ will stand forever. It sustains everything in reality itself. Ultimately, the word of Christ is the core for the new heavens and new earth. It's the core of all creation itself, all truth itself. His words are the very core of all reality. And this is why we've been so focused on in this series of God's word written, right? To be focused on God's word that stemmed from the mouth of Christ, who is the eternal word, the Logos. So as we look on to verse 36 now, important to note, the explanation of Jesus and his prediction of the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and of his final coming. Now he changes the focus here from the temporal considerations of what will lead up to it, right? Those temporal signs that you will see. And he changes his focus to an admonition of vigilance, right? Of readiness to be ready for him. And this has much application for us today. Let's look at verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, another tough passage. This remains true, and after his resurrection, Jesus affirms the truth that it is not given to humans to know the times or the seasons, right, that have been fixed by the Father. And although this discourse gives disciples signs by which they could anticipate Jerusalem's fall in 70 AD, that day or hour of Christ's second coming cannot be predicted by humans, right? Do not be deceived. So he will come like a thief, right, at an hour that you do not expect, And throughout the New Testament, we see that our Lord and his apostles consistently rebuke attempts to predict the time of his second and final coming. So let's look at verse 36 here. We see the phrase, nor the Son. So how do we deal with that? Nor the Son. Well, although omniscient with respect to his deity, right, his divinity, with respect to his humanity, Jesus' knowledge is both finite and changeable. Stay with me for a sec. Mysteriously, his two natures are united in one person, right? He is fully God and fully man, right? So we have to understand that. And yet these are distinctive attributes that are not mixed or confused, right? He's fully God and he's fully man. 
So in his incarnate life, right, Jesus learned things, for example. He learned things as other, humans, other human beings would learn them. On the other hand, Jesus is fully God, and as God, he has infinite knowledge, right? This is tough to understand, but this is the reality of who Jesus is. So here in verse 36, we see him speaking specifically in terms of his human nature, right? This is similar to other statements about Jesus, which could be only true of his human nature. For example, that he grew, that he became strong, that he increased in stature, or he increased in wisdom, that he was about 30 years old, right? Or that he was weary, or thirsty, or hungry. These are all things that show his human nature, and yet he is also fully God at the same time. So in verse 36, when he says, nor the Son, he's specifically referring to his human nature. Again, this might be difficult to grasp for our human minds, but this is the reality of Christ. But the point is, aside from all of that theology, the point is, think about the people who he's talking to in this context. They're not thinking about all that. The point for them is, nobody knows the day or the hour, so be ready. That's the purpose, right? That's why he's saying this, be ready. Let's look at verse 37 to 39. So we start to see this sense of urgency, right? This urgency and warning. So verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So do we see how Noah's flood now is a type as well of the ultimate end, right? So will be like the coming of the Son of Man. So in verse 37 to 39, we see that Christ shows the state of the old world when the flood came, right? They were secure. They were careless. They knew not until the flood came and they did not believe. Noah preached God's judgment to his generation. Notorious for its sinfulness, his work on the ark demonstrated his sincerity. But nobody listened, right? Instead, they went about their daily affairs until the day when Noah entered the ark. We have to put ourselves in the context. Imagine this, right? Noah building an ark for years, taking years to build a boat. People would have thought that he was insane. Preaching the judgment of God. I mean, how many times in this world do people make fun of those who warn of the judgment of God, right? He's coming. Christ is coming. Think of this. You know, it says, then the flood came and swept them all away. You can think of it raining for day and night and day and night and day and night. And people are, are wondering, is, is the rain going to stop? You know, maybe that crazy guy Noah was actually right. Maybe something's going on here. The rain doesn't stop. And then it's too late for people to get on the ark. So will be like Christ's return, right? So we see, we see the ark as a type of the end. We also saw the destruction of Jerusalem as a type of the end. You might use the word archetype. Um, but we see that reality there, Okay. So when Christ comes, people will be going about their business right before and leading up to it. They won't know of what's happening. So let us hear these words. What words can more strongly describe the suddenness 
of our Savior's coming, just like the flood. Again, we don't know the day or the hour, but we will see the signs of the times. In each generation, there will be signs. You'll see these figures are types of the end. But the point is, summer is near. Christ is near, right? Suddenly, the Lord of glory will appear. Are we prepared to meet him? That's the question. Can we stand before him? Are we clothed in his righteousness? Do we actually have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ through faith? Can we stand before a holy God because of who he is and what he's done for us in the gospel? Let's look at verse 40 to 42. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So we see these images here representing believers and unbelievers existing side by side. Like the wheat and the tares until the harvest separates them, right? But again, remember the suddenness of this reality. At the time of the appearing of Christ, separation comes, division. The truth divides. And at the end of the day, it'll be, are you for Jesus or against Jesus, right? Are you united to Christ by faith? His righteousness credited to your account. Or are you against him? Ultimately, we see in verse 40 to 42 that one will receive eternal destruction and the other will experience Christ's salvation, eternal life. One is sheep, the other is goat. One will live in heaven, the other will go to hell. So therefore, we must stay awake, right? This is an active state, to stay awake, not passively waiting. But as we prepare to meet the Son of Man, let us prepare by loving God and serving our neighbors that are existing side by side with us, that we would be completing the work of the Great Commission, taking the gospel to the nations, the gospel that saves souls to people who need it most. But because the time of Christ's return is unknown, we must be ready. And let's end with verse 43 to 44 here. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Right? Do we see that reality there? So to watch for Christ's coming is to maintain that temper of mind, which we would be willing that our Lord should find us in, right? At our Lord's coming, there will be those that are happy, and they'll be found ready, united to him by faith, trusting in him alone for their salvation, believing in the good news of the gospel, and bearing true fruit out of a lively faith. But our Lord's coming will be dreadful for those who do not believe. And Christ tells us not to be deceived. Also, don't be deceived by people who try to tell you the exact day or hour. Instead, listen to Jesus. Be ready. This is the whole point. All of this language, all of this interpretative struggle, be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. When he comes, what will he find in you? Will he find faith? So we must watch. 
as disciples watching continually, actively, and being ready, that our Lord, when he comes, would pronounce us blessed and present us to the Father, washed in his blood, purified by his Spirit, and fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Let us believe in him with a lively faith that he will come and take us to heaven when we truly trust in him alone for our salvation. It's nothing in ourselves. It's all a gift from God that we'd be clothed in his righteous robes, forgiveness of all our sins, able to enter the heavenly gates because we are united to him by faith. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, this morning. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, the perfect life you lived in our place, Lord, and the death that you died that we deserved, satisfying God's justice. We thank you for this good news that we can have salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, Please lead us this day. Strengthen us. Help us to share the gospel with people in our lives that exist with us side by side. The gospel that saves souls, Lord, and that we would be ready for your coming. We lift this time up to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.